Hello and welcome to my Roots are Showing with myself, Nadina Regan. This is the podcast where we talk to well-known people about their lives and about what has made them who they are today. This time out, I'm delighted to tell you that my guest is author, screenwriter and podcaster, John Ronson. John is the author of books including The Psychopath Test, Them, Adventures with Extremists and So You've Been Publicly Shamed. He's well known for his documentaries and screenplays, including the film Frank, starring Michael Fassbender. And his podcasts include The Last Days of August and The Butterfly Effect, both of which perceptively examine the porn industry in the age of the internet. John was born in Britain, in Cardiff actually, but he now makes his home in New York City. And if he lives in Manhattan, well sure look, there was nothing for it but for me to leave my much beloved base in Dublin to take in the bright lights of New York City. Tough life. Over the course of our interview, we'll discuss his New York life, as well as his multifaceted career and background. We'll also discuss his lifelong battle with anxiety, his tougher times on Twitter, and his thoughts on President Donald Trump. This interview took place in John's spacious apartment in Midtown Manhattan, which has beautiful views of the Hudson River, and which he shares with his wife Elaine and their dogs, Floppy and Josie. Just so you know, Floppy was by our feet for the duration. Mr. Ronson, good afternoon. Nadine is here. John Ronson, you are very welcome to My Roots Are Showing. Hey, Nadine, so nice to see you. This is your New York home mm-hmm. in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Uh, very beautiful surrounds, leafy surrounds by the river with the dogs. Yeah. Um, for a podcast that is called My Roots Are Showing, you have come a long way, sir. Like from Cardiff to London. I wonder, are there any little trace remains of your past in, in your New York abode? Um, you mean like literal physical things as opposed to psychological? <laughs> psychological, <laughs> like loads. Um, physical, nothing really, nothing so much from Cardiff. It's funny, when I left Cardiff, I kind of left Cardiff. Um, but there's definitely stuff from, you know, London and Manchester. Uh, there's a picture. Somebody made me a picture. It's in my office, which is just the other side of that wall. Someone made me a picture of um, Frank Sidebottom for when the Frank movie came out. So I've got that framed on my wall. This sort of lovely kind of Banksy-type um, painting of Frank Sidebottom. So I guess that's something from my roots. But not much, to be honest. Also, when we moved to New York, I threw a lot of stuff away, which was stupid. I just I was like cleaning out my office in Highgate in London. And I just threw away loads of stuff, including like loads of the notes that, that I wrote the psychopath test from. I just had this sort of frenzy of like, that's too much clutter. So I just chucked away a whole load of stuff. So I don't have as much as I should have. Also, even though I am quite a nostalgic person, a friend of mine told me once that the second time we met, mm-hmm. I was already talking about old times. Um, so even though I'm nostalgic... I don't tend to keep too much stuff in the past. I've got, I've definitely got some shit in there. I've got like some letters from, you know, girls that I dated when I was like 12, you know, that kind of thing. I've got a few. We'll go through them later. (laughs) Not sight unseen. We won't. (laughs) Go and have a little bit of a uh, look first. 
Well, um, do you have pinch me moments in New York? Because you've been here seven years. You've been in this apartment for five years. And as I mentioned, beautiful views um, Mm -hmm. and a a pretty gorgeous life. So do you sometimes look around and think, wow, like my writing made this, my broadcasting made this, my documentaries made this. Everything Mm -hmm. was made possible by what I have done creatively. It's funny, I just, I've, I've got this big memory of uh, when I lived in London in Highgate and Josie Long, the comedian, came round and she said the same thing. She said, oh my God, like, this all came from nothing. It just came from, like, thoughts in your head. And it is, that is amazing. I don't have too many pinch-me moments because I am generally a sort of anxious, worried person. And, and to, you know, and sort of worried people don't tend to rest on their laurels too much. Um... So I, I have fewer than I ought to. I did have what about a month ago? I did this tour, this theatre tour. You came to the Dublin show, right? Um, well, at, at the London show, we, it was at the London Palladium, and I grew up, you know, watching Sunday Night at the London Palladium, which is where you know Morecambe and Wise and people like that would all perform, and the Beatles and Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, and and I was on on Sunday Night at the London Palladium, um, standing on stage above Bruce Forsyth's Ashes, which. Uh, which are in in the floorboards of the stage, um, and I that was definitely that was a kind of overwhelming pinch me moment. Like I went back to my hotel after it was over, and I sort of had to like calm down. It was it, it was it was quite a sort of unpleasant feeling because you don't like get on stage at the London Palladium and think, well, you know, my life's amazing. You get on stage at the London Palladium and think. I just, I just hope I don't fuck this up. <laughs> well, I do anyway. I wish, I wish I didn't. I wish my mind didn't go there. Well, I, as you mentioned, went along to the Vicar Street show. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it's a very interesting combination of uh, monologue plus uh, little elements of audio, video. And documenting a very interesting period in your life, uh, reflecting on the two podcasts that you've created, the last days of August in particular. And actually, there was a question at the end of the show that really struck me, a question from one of the audience members asking you about what it was like for you doing this stage show now, uh, because the stage show was so centered around the porn industry. And you said that this show had been a harder one for you because people react very differently when the subject matter is porn. Mm. Uh, So, for example, when you had done other stage shows for, say, The Psychopath Test, um, that had been received very differently and you had had maybe bigger audiences with uh, perhaps a more general audience uh, balance. So was that a bit of a shock to you to realise how maybe prissy or fundamentally conservative, large swathes of your audience actually may be yeah well I should say um first that was that didn't happen in Dublin in Dublin I got as big an audience as I would normally get and, uh, the Irish audience I mean of course yeah and it, and it was just great and there was no weirdness like like what you just alluded to and it was just lovely and um but yeah um actually something happened after some some, some of the some of the venues I definitely sold for your tickets than I normally would um Cardiff uh Cambridge and and the only reason that I can think of unless I've just declined in general popularity but there's no like ever, well the, the only um 
the only You're reason, doing fine, John. Right. The only reason I can think of is that it was porn-related. And in fact, something happened after the tour, shortly after the tour, um, which was I got into a bit of a fight with Graham Linehan. Uh, I'm sure everybody knows who he is. I don't have to explain. Uh, well, Graham would have been very famous initially for sitcom writing with uh, Father Ted, um, mm. most notably. Uh, but in recent times, he's become so well known for his presence on Twitter, where he has become, at the very least, a highly controversial presence. He, he, he seems to have become quite obsessed with trans people and how they're invading women's spaces, trans women are invading women's spaces with nefarious intent. Um, that's, that's kind of Graham's um, thing now. He, he seems like a little bit kind of stuck. Anyway, uh, he tried to bring me into it and I told him I wasn't a supporter of his because I don't feel the way that he does about trans people. To rewind slightly, you were friendly with him for a period. Oh, yeah, I've been friends with Graham for like 20 years. Um, this is getting back, this is quite a long story, but it's going to get back to the sex, to the porn stuff um, right at the end. So, yeah, me and Graham have been friends for like years, but like everybody, I was, well, not everybody, but like most people, I was watching surprised and a bit aghast at Graham's um, move into the activism against trans activists. I'm choosing my words carefully, but I'm, I'm trying to use the words that he would use um so uh yeah so i was actually i was in edinburgh it was just before the dublin show i was in edinburgh i was drifting off to sleep and um i saw somebody tweeted something like why is john Ronson still following you on twitter graham and i've noticed that happening a few times like trans people will look at who's following graham and then try and hound them into not following him mm-hmm. um so somebody, that's happened to me a few times and somebody said, you know, why is John Watson following you? And, you know, usually when it happens to you, to me, I say like, you know, I don't, I, I reply to them and I say, look, I don't agree with Graham's views on trans people, but I'm not going to unfollow him just because some stranger on the internet tells me to. It's annoying. Um, so they tend to write back and say, oh, okay. Uh, but this time I was drifting off to sleep and someone said, why is John Watson following you? And I tweeted like, oh, you know, can you leave me out of this? I'm just drifting off to sleep. And then when I woke up the next morning, I had a look. And while I was asleep, Graham had tweeted something like, John Watson follows me because he thinks you're all assholes," meaning his critics. Um, and because I had been... Graham had gone after my friend Maeve Higgins, um, and I did not speak out, for I was not Maeve Higgins. Um, but I felt a little bit bad about it. So that had been in my mind. So I did, so I tweeted something. And then I said, Graham, you know, I don't support you. And then the gates of hell opened. And then they looked for stuff to get me for. Um, very, like, sending out messages. Like, sorry. And when you say they, the they oh, is? Um, sort of people who support Graham's view on the trans issue. They all tend to... to um, gather on mum's net, the, the, the mother's site. Uh, did not know that. Yeah. Mum's net is the place to be if you don't support the trans movement. Very much so, yeah. Mum's net has its own really interesting history for, for something that's so on the surface, you know, a, a positive and innocuous site. You did go private for a while then on Twitter, didn't you? Yeah, well, it was because of what what's about what I'm about to tell you. So... So they were looking for things to like get me for, and they figured out that I'd made two documentaries about the porn industry, and people who tend to be anti-trans 
are also quite often anti-sex work. So they also sort of try to get me because I'd made some shows about porn that were nuanced. Um, and nuance, I can't remember who said that nuance is the enemy of tyranny, um, but it is. And they just couldn't bear the fact that my shows about porn weren't anti-porn polemics. And so they really started going for me. And that was the first time, because in one of the shows, somebody said, have you like experienced any stigma for making shows of two, these two documentaries about porn? And I was like, no, you know, I've been around 30 years. No one's, you know, people just think, oh, it's just John Ronson going off on one of his journeys. Um, but in that moment, it was like, yeah, that's exactly what was happening. People were kind of calling me a pervert. And, and it was all because I'd written two or three pretty innocuous tweets to Graham saying, leave me out of your crusade. I mean, that was my, that was my sin. Um, and people were tweeting, like, if you have any information about John Ronson and porn, please DM me. People were tweeting, this is really fucked up shit. So, yes, yeah, so I, went, I went private. And I did experience, you know, kind of stigma then. It is, I mean, of course, heavily ironic, given that you wrote the book on the subject, so you've been publicly shamed. Um, mm. And you've experienced so much through the years, you know, starting out with books such as Them, Adventures with Extremists, mm. moving through uh, The Men Who Stare at Goats, you know, examining uh, the lives of people who honestly believed that uh, a look or a stare could yeah. achieve. I mean, it has to be quite a concentrated stare, stare. yeah. <laughs> And look, and there'd be goats dying everywhere. <laughs> Concentrated look <laughs> can yeah. achieve great things. Uh, but, you know, you've, you've, you've been through the mill in some regards. But I wonder if the past few months, I mean, for you to go private, like a lot of people said to me, they were like, John Bronson's gone private on Twitter. What's going on there? Mm. And it made me wonder if the mob had finally caught up to you a little bit, that you did feel vulnerable. Uh, no, and... I didn't. I did feel that way when So You've Been Publicly Shamed first came out and a different bunch of people started started going for me, kind of left-wing activists who thought that public shaming is one of the few weapons of the dispossessed. And so if I'm writing a book attacking public shaming, then I'm attacking the dispossessed, was, was their sort of theory. Um, and they really went for me. And that was quite frightening. Is there a race and class element to that as well? Because I've noticed some people saying that this idea of the person who is shamed asserting victimhood status and then them equating that with, isn't it noticeable that it's often the white male who asserts victimhood status mm. uh, around the shaming when actually these people should be shamed because they are asserting old cliches or tropes about uh, societal levels or ways of thinking um, that assume things that can often make life very difficult for people who are from uh, minority ethnic groups. And while that's an interesting philosophy, like, it's pretty broad, isn't it? Yeah, and it still doesn't justify kind of, you know, disproportionate bullying, which is what So You've Been Publicly Shamed was about. It was about people who were being disproportionately punished for committing, you know, very minor infractions. Uh, I, I kind of kept the book, to, you know, in, in, within those kind of narrow parameters. But that doesn't mean I disagree with anything that you just said. Like, I, I, I agree with it. And um, um, Is it hard to be a white male now, though? No. <laughs> dangerous, dangerous. <laughs> no, no, but see, this is the thing, though, because uh, honestly, I, I think you can both be the white male who's historically always had it good mm -hmm. and 
at the same time, in specific instances, still be the victim of bullying and you should be allowed to call that out? Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I'm completely against bullying, but I'm not against the sort of wider ideology that, um, you know... Well, I mean, this is... I mean, the patriarchy is real. Yeah, and, you know, um, we need to, like... I mean, this will sound a bit pious, but, you know, we need to kind of budge up a bit. It's about time, so... Well, I'll tell you, I had a friend once, right, shall remain nameless, but white male author, and he came to me and he said, you know, things are just so tough for me now. All the women are winning prizes. All the women are the ones getting talked about in the media. He was like, my life is the pits. And he was looking for sympathy. (laughs) And he might have come to the wrong audience. Because, you know, when I started out in my career at the age of about 22 interviewing authors, I didn't get to interview female authors because they weren't sent on book tours they didn't come to Dublin uh, they did not have the budget around them and they didn't get the book deals Mm. Uh, so that has changed and it is a very positive change in the sense of achieving greater equality but that doesn't mean that it doesn't ruffle feathers yes Um, yeah Um, and I've had people say the same thing to me I've got a friend who I I won't say who it is but you know he was told he, he lost his job kind of sort of you know high profile good job in radio and he said that he couldn't get a job he couldn't get another job in the BBC uh, because they weren't because they weren't looking for white men and he was that really upset and I should say there's a certain level of privilege that I've got here when I said like I'm not bothered about any of this stuff I mean part of the reason I'm not bothered about any of this stuff is because it's selfish it's because like I'm fine like I've got I generate a lot of work and everything And, and he was you know this guy was worried and upset but that was about a year ago and he's done very well since then. Like he's he he does do work for the BBC, and he does a very successful podcast. And so actually, his fears were. I'm not saying that his fears were fake. He was genuinely worried. But you know, the last year has has shown that he's fine. Um, and of course, and you're going to get periods, you know, in these in these sort of you know, we're living through a sort of pretty seismic period right now of a kind of rebalancing of power, and you are going to get people. Um, uh, collateral damage Um, and and I do have sympathy because I'm not an ideologue like I I believe in each individual human story as having its own worth and merit Mm. so but I just don't really believe that the sort of you know fears of the of the privileged white man are quite as valid as they think they are I suppose is what I'm saying well, I think we're talking about two things, you know, it's essentially um, a movement and, and the feminist movement coming to the fore again, having experienced somewhat of a lull in previous decades, and then also the internet revolution and the consequences of that mm. around uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and every industry, whether you're in media or travel, being fundamentally affected. Mm. But let's go back maybe to mm. the beginning a little bit for you, because mm-hmm. As I mentioned, we are here in this lovely New York residence, uh, dog at our feet, and it's a great point for you. Uh, what, you're 52 now? Yep. Yep. And uh, you've come a long way since that boy in Cardiff. So uh, not to throw around t- too many big words, but uh, you know, in terms of the existentialist in you, like the, the person who was trying to make yourself, I mean, were you this ferociously ambitious possibly somewhat anxious uh, 16-year-old? You know, I wasn't ambitious. I I didn't become ambitious till I was probably around 20, 
You got thrown into a lake. Yeah, but and many similar things. The lake wasn't the only thing. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. The reason I, was, I wrote funnily about being thrown into a lake. I'm uh, not like sitting here going. <laughs> <laughs> you got thrown into a lake, and I wish I'd seen it. Uh, you did tell yeah. you did tell me, and you've spoken in your stage show about you made contact with one of the boys who threw you into the lake, yeah. lake after you became a very successful author. I emailed him. I emailed him to tell him that I'm now a best-selling author. And he emailed me back to say that the reason why they threw me in the lake was because I was a pain in the ass. And the tenor of my email leads him to suspect that I haven't changed and that throwing me in the lake. So that didn't work out how I'd hoped at all. Uh, so, so, so really, between 16 and 18, it was all about like getting out of it. It was all about finding, uh, finding a life that I felt I fitted into. So what that meant specifically was I start, I'd started going to Edinburgh like I started going to the Edinburgh Festival I think when I was 16 that was my first and I went alone and I just sort of sat and watched buskers and you know went to crappy shows and but also good shows too I remember meeting these are some of these names will be forgotten now but at the time they were legends I, I have John Hegley and the Popticians and these were really important you know people in this in the um the evolution of like alternative comedy I suppose uh John Hegley Andrew Bailey and think who else I mean some of them are, are famous now uh, uh, Joe Brand so I'd watch I'd sort of just sit there and watch them I remember um Mark Thomas you know Mark Thomas the comedian um coming up to me really crossly and saying you know I watch you I see you you just sit there you just sit there looking at us all and sort of sucking it all in like when are you gonna when are you gonna do something yourself why are you just sitting there as this sort of passenger when are you gonna do something um, and what did you want to do I didn't know. I mean, I wasn't in any great hurry. I just, I just wanted to not be unhappy and live in Cardiff. I, I wanted to find my my place. Um, what did you think you were good at? Uh, at that point, nothing. Um, my mother also, when I was sixteen, convinced me to volunteer at the local radio station CBC. There was this thing called Action Line, uh, where people would like phone up and say, you know, can you help me? There's a, I don't know paper bag and there's a plastic bag in the tree that I can't get out of the tree. What was your job? To get the bag out of the tree, I guess, or, or, or certainly to, to log the call and pass it to the, to the relevant authority. So this wasn't the beginning of a glittering career as a broadcaster? Well, there was a DJ there called Binder Singh who took me under his wing a bit and, and made me like his um, sidekick on his radio show. So that was my very first broadcasting experience was being Binder's sidekick. Later on, I became Terry Christian's sidekick, like a few years later up in Manchester. So I was a sidekick for a while. And then later again, you actually re- replaced Mark Radcliffe as yeah. the keyboardist in the Frank Sidebottom band. Well, that's much later. So what happened was when I was so 16 to 18, I would like go to Edinburgh, hang out with these comedians and just try to figure out like who I was. And then when I was 18, I, I moved to London and... Um, went to the Polytechnic of Central London to study journalism, which I only got, like I wasn't academic. And it was a very popular course to get in. Like it was, I was, it was my first, like, this is amazing because um, 
I can't remember the figures, but there was like thousands of people applying for 30 places or something, and I got a place. Um, I mean, I think I turned up at the interview in, with my usual gawky, uncomfortable in my own skin, you know, way, which I was feeling at the time, but something about me impressed them. Um, and it might have been the fact that I was volunteering at the local radio station, so they thought I showed gumption. Mm. So, uh, so they offered me a place. And, and then when I was at college, I became the social secretary. I started putting on the shows. So I put on a lot of comedy. So all these people that I'd watched from afar, I was now promoting. And one of the people I put on was Frank Sidebottom, and I became his keyboard player. One of the things that I think um, is really difficult to figure out now, and particularly with intern culture becoming so prevalent, is if you're a creative person and you really want to make it in the creative industries, it feels like a lot of people are saying, well, we shouldn't be working for free. So what would your advice be to people now who are that age and who have the same interests and the same passions? Right. Because by this time, um, like I was beginning to figure out what I was you know, what I should do, and it, and it was writing. Like, it was really fun being in bands, but I knew that wasn't, like, my life. I wasn't, I was, I wasn't musical. Um, I mean, I... I personally, I don't see anything wrong with interning. Um, I mean, just because, I mean, I did it, or, or, or got paid so little, it sort of basically is the same as not getting paid. Because uh, I started writing when I moved up back uh, when I moved up to Manchester to be in Frank Sidebottom's band, I started working for the local listings magazine, and they'd pay. Honestly, I don't think they, either they didn't pay at all, or they paid like twenty quid for you know for a feature or something. Um, plus, you'd get free lunch if you went to the movies. They had a movie every morning, and if you went to the movie to to review it, you'd get like a free lunch. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I have no negative um, you know memories of, of that time. I always think it's about asking yourself if you're getting more than you're giving, like if, yeah. if the experience that you're getting is significant to you and that you're learning. Uh, and if that's the case, then you suck it up and yeah. do whatever. Um, but if, if as, and as often happens when you get older, that exchange is no longer the same. At that point, yes. the dollar signs start to appear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And certainly when I work with like experienced older people now, I always make sure that, that you know, that they're paid. The, the proper amount like I, I never um saying that it's rare that I'm ever involved in how much somebody's going to get paid but if I ever am I, I always pay them really well um but yeah I think the other thing that helped was that I was getting compliments like I'd start to write for the college magazine and for City Life in Manchester and and I was getting compliments my 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 college lecturer said to me that I was the only person who wrote for the college magazine, who knew how to write. And that, that was a moment when I thought, OK, well, that's, I guess, what I'm going to have to do for, for my job then, is be a writer, if, if, that's, if I just happen to be, you know, naturally good at it. Um, so I suppose that's the bigger answer to your intern question. And, and this is like a hard answer, but I think it's the truthful answer, which is, like, are you, any, are you good? Um, and if you're good, then do whatever it takes, um, because you'll you'll rise up the ladder and you'll, you'll make it. Uh, yeah. But if, but if you're not good, if you just don't have a natural... Like, I'm not naturally good at anything except for writing and, and, and editing um, audio. Those are the only two things I'm, I'm good at. But I do think you have, there has to be something within you that makes you good, as well as ambitious and a hustler and all those other things. You also have to be, 
you have to be kind of good at it. I think I probably first became properly acquainted with you through your Guardian columns, Mm. which took in stories of your family life. And at the time you were based uh, on the other side of the Atlantic Mm. and you wrote about your wife, Elaine, your son, Joel. And there was so much affection and humor and, you know, it it always looked very effortlessly well done. And yet I know coming out from the other side how tough it can be to make that seem so uh, just simply put, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into that. But and there's also a lot of danger because, I mean, you're talking about your own relationship with, you know, your significant other, the one, the person you love and your, I mean, in fairness, Joel's older now. And at the time, I think he was obviously less aware but like when all that kicked off and the guardian having such a large readership and you becoming suddenly so well known for that uh, how did that feel um bad uh first because you're right i mean it might have seemed effortless but I, I, it was hell writing that weekly column um the days when i would just like literally stare at my computer for an entire day and not have any idea of what to write and and would just emerged from my office at the end of the day just broken um, and uh, and it would take me all week often to write a column it's only like six or seven hundred words and it would take me all week I think if you're a perfectionist you shouldn't write a weekly column it's gonna it's gonna kill you did you find yourself trying to manufacture events I mean towards the end yeah or not manufacture events but maybe hope that hope something bad would happen so I'd have something to write about and then so that takes me to the second part of your question which is the natural just how problematic it is to write about your domestic life because the 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 worse your domestic life is the better the column is and and it becomes a form of um exploitation like you know as, as as gentle and and the joke was always on me, you know, I was never obviously making fun of, you know, anybody around me. But even so, it was, it was wrong. Like, and, and it was, and I knew that for probably at least six months or a year before I finally, you know, was able to quit the column. And it was partly because The Guardian put quite a lot of pressure on me to not quit. Like, I'd pluck up the courage to say, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. Like, it's, it's really killing me, like both things like feeling that I'm exploiting my family and also just I'm finding it so hard to write and it's I, I, and also there was this other thing that's I mean I love the Guardian but they did something around that period that really bugged me and it was um that column generated a lot of letters many of which were positive and some of which were negative and the Guardian got into the habit of printing only the negative letters and it became like a sort of cycle. Um, I'd write a column, the letters page would be full of, you know, John Ronson's an idiot. And I sort of got the sense, I I kind of felt there was a little bit of a disconnect between how I saw myself and how The Guardian at the time saw me. And I saw myself as like a pretty serious writer and they saw me as a sort of you know, it was there was a sort of element of mockery there that they, that the letters page would be filled with, um, you know, with with letters mocking me, and I think the Guardian thought that was really funny. Um, well, I think I, they probably thought it would generate a lot of interest. Yeah. So the whole thing felt wrong, uh, and so I'd say to them like, "I really want to quit," and then they'd say, um, "You know, oh please don't quit. You know, everybody loves the column. Don't quit." And because I was like a sort of conflict averse 
people pleaser, I wouldn't quit. And it took me close to a year, I'd say, to like finally quit. And I'm not really blaming them. Like I should have just stuck to my guns. I should have said, no, I'm quitting. I'd, I'd, have, quit, I'd have quit like a year earlier if, I, if I'd had the courage to say that. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't feel... Other than the fact that some of the columns were like really funny, I, I, there isn't much about that period that I would defend. So you moved on to what you considered to possibly to be a safer subject and other people might have considered to be far more extreme. So, of course, your, your book career uh, yeah. kicking off... Uh, well, you had a book, uh, Club Class. Uh, yeah, but I wrote that when I was like 24 yeah. and, and, you know, it was like, yeah, not a proper book. But then you moved on to Them, Adventures of Extremists, 2001, and, of course, The Psychopath Test, which is possibly your best-known book. But uh, in many of the cases uh, in the books that you've written and, and I've thoroughly enjoyed, you have documented a side of society that many people don't regularly encounter, mm. and the likes of well, I mean, people like Ian Paisley, David Icke. Uh, Ian Paisley used to call you the Jew, right? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, he was very happy that there was a Jew in his entourage that he could make lots of Jewish jokes to. Uh, yeah, this was 98. This was before he um, became a, a good guy. That was a surprising twist. This was during the Good Friday Agreement, 98, 98. I think. Yeah, and Paisley had like exiled himself from the peace process and gone to Cameroon to preach to the sinners in this um, Northern Irish producer called David Malone, who, who then went to Dublin and produced The Late Late Show for a while. Uh, he uh, persuaded Paisley somehow to let us uh, tag along on his week-long uh, missionary trip to Cameroon. Um, so, yeah, so we made a documentary uh, about that. And, um, yeah, Paisley sort of running jokes about, you know, my, my circumcised friend, yeah. That was the cameraman, David Barker, would say, don't, you know, he's, he's from another time. <laughs> my, my cameraman was like, so like Ian Paisley would make all these anti-Semitic, you know, things. And then David Barker would like come up to me and say, don't be offended. <laughs> he's like my cameraman. He's like, don't be offended. He's from a different time. <laughs> but, but actually, were you OK with everything? Yeah, I was fine. I mean, I wouldn't say that it was like a particularly fun week because I was treading on eggshells the whole time. Um, Ian Paisley and David McElveen, who was his um, co-reverent head of the Save Ulster from Sodomy campaign, uh, which I, th I think we can say now, like 20 years later, uh, failed. There's sodomy all over the place uh, in Ulster, I presume. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you can't move for sodomy. Um, so um, they were very suspicious of me and thought that I was there to mock them, and um, which I suppose I, I, I kind of was uh, a, a bit at the time. I, I was a different kind of writer back then. I was more interested in sort of, I wouldn't say poking fun at people, but I was definitely more open to people coming over as sort of a bit silly and absurd in my stories, less so these days. Um, it's true, actually. The drift in your books has been towards a more serious non-fiction narrative, which yeah. maybe echoes the tenor of the times because, you know, I was looking back recently on when I first joined Twitter many years ago and the happy, innocent tweets I used to put out that were read by my select friends and family. Yeah. And I'm sure I loved it. Nothing, e nothing bad ever happened. Yeah. 
Yeah, how unselfconscious it was. I mean, there's been a profound shift in, in Twitter. P P anyone who was on Twitter in like 2010, 2011, you know, will, will vouch. It was completely different. It was a place where you could be risky and unselfconscious and, and nobody would get you and you'd be open about your um, shameful secrets and, and everyone would like support you. And then it, it, it turned. And, and how and why it turned, I think, is a really interesting story. That, um, but yeah, but it turned. But so you have become a more serious writer. And I mean, does that come with, uh, actually you mentioned earlier that you said, well, I'm not good at anything except writing and, and, and audio editing, but you are doing these stage shows now where you actually deliver extremely successfully this audio version of yourself. But it means that you are meeting your public. There is a huge queue, uh, meet and greet after the Vicar Street show and a huge wave of enthusiasm for you at it. You have responsibilities now at the age of 52 that you probably didn't as a young man yeah. uh, starting out. So how conscious are you of that and also of being maybe a spokesman for a particular type of generation? Yeah, I, I think uh, in the last few years, I have become a little bit more, I don't know what the right word is, it's not a moralist, um, but I've definitely become a bit more like, I have a point of view about how the world should be and I'm and I'm sort of extolling that point of view. And that point of view is, I guess, humanism over ideology is, is a big part of it. The reason why I really, the reason why I felt so annoyed about Graham, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, Graham and the anti-sex work ideologues and so on, is they, they tell people who they are. Like, they will tell sex workers who they are. Um, I was talking... Probably my closest friend in New York is um, is the data journalist Mona Chalabi, uh, who's a Muslim. And I was talking to her about this, and she suddenly said, oh, my God, you know, this is something that sex workers and women in hijab have in common, which is that they're told they're oppressed. And when they reply that they're, that they're not oppressed, nobody believes them. Um, and for some reason, that gets to the heart of what I care about. I... I hate uh, ideologues swooping in and telling people who they are and refusing to to allow that person to 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 say well I have lived experience which is different to your ideological view of me and for some reason that just you know that's the most important thing in the world for me to write about um it probably goes back to you know being bullied at Cardiff High School because when an ideologue swoops in and tells you that you may think you have agency but you don't it's kind of it's a form of bullying it's a form of identity theft and bullying is a form of identity theft because you're told you're, you're, you're an asshole I think the biggest problem with Twitter is something we, we have been alluding to which is the tendency to create a mob-like feel mm. that can suggest that something is the case that is actually not the case so for example the silent majority that do not tweet in defense of somebody who is being attacked because of fear mm. uh, and fear is is a major factor on twitter the last few days I've, I've barely been on twitter and it's because these sort of not so much the anti-trans people but the anti-sex work people although they are the same people they're the same individuals they were arguing against me in such bad faith that it did make me think, oh, what's the point of being on Twitter at all? You know, if there's so many people who are acting in bad faith. And by bad faith, I mean, you know, they've got an ideological imperative and they don't care about nuanced individual human stories. I thought about that, actually, because I think it's come up a number of times for a number of well-known people. And I think the point of remaining on it 
is to offer some sort of bulwark or defense against that mob-like mentality that is, to be honest, ruining the party for everyone. Yeah, yeah, I think it's true. I was really kind of startled by, especially the anti-sex work people, um, because, you know, my, my crime, well, my crime was sticking up for trans people, but my other crime was making these two documentaries that basically said, you know, the San Fernando Valley which is the most sort of privileged corner of the porn industry, um, is a huge complicated place where you'll find myriad stories from the worst abuse and exploitation through to sex positive people having having a fine time. And the reason why I just sort of said that is because I've spent the last three years on and off in, in the porn community and I've just seen that that's the truth. And anyway, their way of trying to like bring me down was to tweet things like, if you know anything about John Ronson and porn, please DM me. Which is like, that's a frightening thing. I mean, luckily, there's, there's, no, there's nothing out there. There's, a, there's nothing to get me for. Which is why, instead of being terrified, I just like looked at that and raised my eyebrow. But Well, I don't have a list of questions concerning your porn preferences. Well, good. Um, good. Um, when you think about my crime and then you think about the way that they responded to my crime, it feels pretty startling to me. Let's change the subject a little bit. Another topic that you have long engaged with and I think has come more and more to the fore in recent years is, is the subject of anxiety, personal mm. anxiety, uh, panic and what it feels like to exist as somebody in the spotlight and living your everyday life with symptoms of anxiety. First off, as a young man, was that always present? And if it was present, how did it manifest itself? Uh, yes, I think it, I think it was always present. Um, I think as a teenager, I was pretty fucked up. Um, like if I was my father and I saw some of the you know fucked up things I did as a teenager, I'd be thinking, God, I've got a really troubled son. Um, but that all went away when I was like eighteen and moved to moved to London. Um, yeah, I've always been. I've always been anxious. I've always had anxiety and panic. And uh, the panic really started when I started dating Elaine. Actually, <laughs> she she created panic in me because, like, she would. Um, I, I was like, I'd stay in quite a lot. I've always been quite a staying in person, and she'd like go out all night drinking. And so I'd like, you know, um, this. And what did she do when you met? Oh, she was the deputy editor at Time Out. Um, and, you know, we were... We so she obviously went out. Yeah, they all went out drinking all the time. Um, so I'd sort of sit at home and sort of feel a bit panicky about that. Like, I hope she's okay. Um, and so I think I did have panic attacks back back then. I remember being, when I was writing them, I was in Washington, D.C., trying to infiltrate the Bilderberg group. Uh, but what? But that wasn't worrying me. What was worrying me was the fact that I couldn't, my wife wasn't picking up the phone and we were just dating then. And... This is before sort of cell phones were, were a thing. And so I was like phoning and phoning and phoning. And finally, I got, I got hold of her. And the next morning, I was, I was in this hotel for one night and my phone bill came to $900. Uh, so that's clearly the, uh, that was clearly a panic attack. And that was the financial cost of it. There, there does seem to be an essential conflict. And I think it's one that you may, people may often wonder about you, that you could appear on, say, the Late Late or the equivalent in the US or the, the UK. Yeah. 
and conduct yourself extremely well and then have these symptoms of anxiety and panic over seemingly very small time kind of real world kind of things. So how do you explain that to someone who just doesn't get it? Um, I think it's to do with what psychologists call what-if worries. I think most people with anxiety experience what's called what-if worries. Is it catastrophizing? Yeah, catastrophizing. I can't get my wife on the phone. She must be dead. Um, And then you immediately go to all the feelings that you would feel if you've just found out that your wife's dead. So you go through that grief and panic. Um, It's always what-if worries. And I think this is true with most anxiety sufferers. Um, What if... Well, I mean, what-if is is what OCD is based on, right? And Tourette's. Like, what if um, I didn't... You know, what if I left the oven on and the house is going to burn down? Or what is... But when you put us into genuinely dangerous situations, we tend to handle it quite well. Maybe because we've... We've lived through so many imaginary catastrophic situations. Um, it's the norm because it would be your normal state of being. Because your normal state of being is that there is a high alert. Yeah, but yeah, luckily, I, so I would say going on stage at like Vicar Street or the Palladium—that's not anxiety-inducing. I'd probably call that low-level traumatic. <laughs> like, like when I'm back here. You know, you're here in my apartment. Like, most nights, I'll sit on that sofa and watch that TV. Like, that's how I spend most nights. So when I'm on stage at Vicar Street or the Palladium, there's this weird, I have this weird thought, which is like, I'm not really here. Like, where I really am is back at home on my sofa watching TV. Like, that's where I really am. Do you mean like you're having an out-of-body experience? It just feels increasingly unreal. Like, me being on stage in Britain or Ireland or Australia which are like the three places I tend to do most of my talks. Um, it just doesn't feel like the real me. It feels like the real me has to suspend his life for a few weeks when this sort of fake me, not fake because it's still me, but but I then go off and do these kind of, you know, uh, extraordinary things, like talking in front of a thousand people. So is there a Sasha Fierce vibe? Like, do you have a, a pseudonym for the alter ego that goes on stage? <laughs> no. <laughs> you and Beyonce. Yeah. <laughs> Beyonce. Beyonce. Sasha Fierce is her oh. alter ego. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, there you go. I don't have a name. But it's when I first started being on stage, there wasn't really any disconnect between me and the person who was on stage. It was just me. But as I've got older, I've noticed more and more of a disconnect, and it really does feel like there's two people now. There's the normal me, and there's the onstage me, who's completely disconnected from my, from my real life. It's like a weird dream journey. What does your therapist say about that? Well, I've actually stopped going to therapy because I'm fine now. Um, the very last visit I, I had with my therapist was just before I, I embarked upon this big tour, which was throughout May, I think it was, yeah. And he said, embrace it. And, and sure enough, I did. And actually, the whole tour was great. I really did embrace it. I'm so glad that he said that to me. Because every time I was thinking, what the fuck am I doing? You know, um, like the travel, you know, getting up really early to get a train to a new town. And then you have to like sit and wait for like seven hours till you can go on stage. And you can't really do anything because you can't tie yourself out because then you won't be any good on stage. So it's all weird. And But I just, what kept 
popping into my head was, was the therapist saying to me, embrace it. And, and actually, I really did. And I had great, you know, for all the weird surreality and dreamlikeness of it. And I actually had a really good time. What advice would you give to people who suffer very badly from anxiety? It is a growing phenomenon these days, perhaps led by our overuse of social media. Yeah, well, CBT's good. Um, Cognitive behavioural therapy. Yeah, I like I like that it's... When I, I had this sort of little mini collapse at the beginning of the year on New Year's Eve, and, and you know, nothing like that ever happened to me before, and so I went to a, a therapist who turned out to be a Freudian therapist, and that was... I was fucked up. I didn't want that. I know I've probably just annoyed a whole bunch of people who are really into psychotherapy, but it definitely wasn't for me. Like, I didn't want to sleuth around my unconscious. I wanted to just quickly get better. It's like when you get flu, you know, you know, it, was, it felt like I had flu. And the last thing you want to do when you've got flu is, like, have some psychodrama with your mother. You want to, you want to get rid of the symptoms. But how are you with your mother? Uh, <laughs> Fine. I had a joke in my stage show about my mother um, that because the therapist sort of... Um, oh, it's a long story. I, I, I go on. Okay. Give me the short version. So the first therapist I went to, like I was telling her what I thought all the problems really were and the reason why I'd had this little collapse. This is like six months ago. And she kind of listened. And then when I finished talking, she said, and, you know, how was your relationship with your mother? Uh, am I angry with my mother? She said, are you angry with your mother? And I kind of went, well, if, you know, of course, but, you know, what's, what's that got to do with it? And, um, and then later on, like that, later that day, I phoned my mother to tell her that I was having, you know, I'd had a sort of breakdown. And her first response was, um, well, I hope Elaine's okay, because I care about Elaine very much, which made me think that the first therapist was, you know, onto something. Um, anyway, so I had that joke in my show, and, and uh, my mother was coming to the Cardiff event, and I was really agonising as to whether to say it or not, on, and, I, and I did. But, you know, my, one really good thing about my mother is that she's, um, she doesn't really have an ego about that sort of thing. Like, if it's funny, it's funny. Mm-hmm. And so cognitive behavioural therapy, in short, is a good idea and um, embrace, maybe embrace yourself and who you are. Well, I suppose that's kind of quite similar to cognitive behavioural therapy because, you know, what makes anxiety worse is you battling the anxiety. It's just like when you're going to sleep, right? Like if I, uh, oh my God, I hope I go to sleep, you're much more likely to have insomnia. So that's the, like, one of the main things that CBT teaches you is not to battle these feelings, but to sort of... Go, go along with them for the ride and they'll, and they'll diminish. Um, well, we haven't had the opportunity to talk about uh, some of your friends and competitor, competitors. We haven't talked about Louis Thoreau, who I know you're in friendly competition with. Yeah, I'm, I'm fond of Louis now. I mean, what, what really... <laughs> well, what fixed us? He up? made a face. He didn't make a face. <laughs> no, I, 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 I sometimes feel a little bit embarrassed. I've got this great joke that I use on stage sometime about how me and Louis used, used to be, that we were like... Um, because people would constantly compare us to each other and we were like conjoined twins and if one of us grow stronger, the other one had to die. But but in subsequent years, me and Louis have kind of become friends and, and it's partly because like we're not competitive anymore because he does TV and I write books and do podcasts. And so, um, uh, and frankly, he was a lot better at making TV documentaries than, than I ever was. But well, there's I, no need now to be comparisons are odious. Yeah, yeah. Well exactly, there's enough space for all of us. Yeah. 
And, you know, what we do is actually only superficially similar. I'd say in many ways it's very different. Well, I also can't let you go without asking, has your friendship with Robbie Williams survived the years? Yeah, um, it has. I was actually thinking about Robbie this morning because my son's in L.A. for the summer and... um, and he's met Robbie a few times and Robbie's wife. And I was actually just thinking that I should text Joel to say that he should um, text Robbie to see if, you know, they should they should get coffee. Um, so um, when Robbie you say get coffee, this is like an L.A. term for Joel being a musician, Robbie being a musician. Well, actually, what it was an L.A. term for was the fact that Robbie lives in this kind of amazing house in Beverly Hills and... Get coffee basically means Joel going around there and swimming in Robbie's pool. That's that's really what I was thinking. Um, nice, very yeah. nice. Uh, and Joel is doing brilliantly as well, so that's great to see. But finally, like, what what is next for you? You know, you've achieved a lot. You've come off the back of the tour. It's been very successful. Your books are constantly to the forefront of people's minds. Um, even now, people are reading the psychopath test and wondering if their boss is a psychopath mm-hmm. or not. Uh, they're reading So You've Been Publicly Shamed and thinking about what could happen for them just around the corner on the internet. And uh, the stage show, as we mentioned, is, is shedding very important light on the porn industry. But what's next? Because you are going to run out of odd and unusual corners of the universe to explore. Especially because I found it really hard to go back to the same subject. Um, not not knowing a world is is what motivates me to do a story. So each time I explore a world, I can't really go back to it. So the older I get and the more stories I do, the fewer stories there are for me to do. I sometimes envy people like Catla Moran and Ben Goldacre who have a specialist area that they just, they just continue to explore over and over again. Like, I, I don't feel that I can do that. Um, I mean, I do have a specialist area in that it's, it's always stories about humans and the... the and trying to, you know, be curious and empathetic and compassionate about, you know, flawed humans. So I suppose that is the kind of running theme in, in my stuff. So I'm doing a few things. I'm writing a theatre show. Well, I'm doing revisions on a theatre show. Um, I'm doing revisions on a on a film that, that I wrote. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm, oh, I'm doing another audio project for Audible. Um, and I'm sort of trying to figure out a new book to write. So, so I'm kind of doing all of that. But it's all quite long term, which is good. There's no immediate deadlines, which I'm really happy about. So after I leave this apartment, will you be taking the dogs for a walk? And um, what will well, you be getting up to? Well, Jen, the dog walker, will be taking the dogs for a walk because um, Elaine's away. So Jen's doing the first two walks of the day and I'm doing the last two walks of the day. So how many walks are they getting? Four. Every day? Yeah. Um, maybe it's a bit overzealous. I'm, sometimes I really have to pull... Josie. Are they on a diet or something? No, I just... They, they look trim, let me just say. I, I want them to experience the fullness that, that life could offer them. <laughs> that's the reason why. I just, I feel guilty if they just sat there, like... Because, like, look, okay, Fluffy's lying. Well, obviously, he seems pretty happy. But there's always a little part of me that's thinking, like, is he bored? Like, should I be, um, should I be, uh, um, you know, in, inspiring the dogs more? Do you have a webcam for them? Like, just keep an eye on them when you're off? No. Uh-uh. Would that be invasive? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. You're like, yes. <laughs> it could go down to about three walks a day yeah. now because they're both getting a bit older. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's mainly to do with guilt. It's guilt. Like, if the dogs are in the apartment too long, I sort of think, you know, they need to be, they need to have like sensory awareness, like they need to be smelling things. I feel guilty. I feel guilty if the dogs are in for too long. 
So I'll be taking, but I'm not doing that till six o'clock. So I've got, um, I've got kind of a nice afternoon. I'm meeting the guy from Audible straight after this, who, who's looking after this new audio show that I'm doing for them. And then a couple of hours after that, I'm actually talking to the film company um, who I'm doing these revisions for on a screenplay. So they're just going to be like talking through their notes. And then that will take me to like six o'clock. And then I'll take the dogs out. And then tonight, it's the second democratic debate. Um, did you watch it last night? Do you know what? Yeah. I did. I saw a bit of it. Yeah. And I was just really struck by this is going to sound like we were only just watching in passing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was an awful there's not a lot of them and yeah, yeah it seems a little it seemed a little bit I don't know I mean it, uh, amateur seems the wrong word <laughs> what did you think of it well I mean well last night's one was quite extraordinary because of the 10 that you saw last night only only three of them are known to the public um Elizabeth Warren Bill de Blasio and um Cory Brooker um they're the only three who who have any kind of public awareness. Out of those three, honestly, it's really only Elizabeth Warren. So there were seven people on stage last night who really did have to introduce themselves to the American public for the first time. Um, you know, there was some of the people you'd have no. And one of them, Castro, had a real kind of standout performance, and so that was exciting for people. But then tonight, it's the second half of the debates, and it's more of the heavy hitters. The only real heavy hitter last night was Elizabeth Warren. And tonight it's the other heavy hitters, Bill de Blasio, um, sorry, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. Can I make a prediction? Um, uh, and I want you to know that I predicted Trump before he even got the nomination. Uh, my, my prediction is this, is, this is a very risky prediction because she's really, really low in the uh, polls at the moment. But my prediction is that Kamala Harris is going to do like incredibly well and could even get the nomination and could be the next president. Because she, um, right now where I'm standing, she seems to be the only one who could unite the moderates and the progressives. Everybody else is either a moderate or a progressive. And Kamala seems to be the only one who could really bridge that that divide. And she's very personable. And she's a woman. And it's, you know, it's it's definitely time for a woman. Um, so my so, prediction is that, is that Kamala's going to get the nomination. But right now, I'm saying this right now, she's really low down. She's on like sort of 7 or 8% when Joe Biden's on like 30%. And as a resident of New York City, what can bring Trump down? If scandal and everything else can't. Yeah, it has to be a good democratic contender. So a person rather than an issue. Yeah, I think at this stage, at this stage, it, it's it has to be because um, nothing else is working. You know, the people have decided that they like him, dis- like him, despite the fact that he sexually assaults people and lies and colludes and <laughs> obstructs justice and separates families at the border and uh, puts children into you know, these detention camps, which are frankly, you know, not dissimilar to concentration camps. And none of that's affecting his poll ratings. Um, um, you know, he has a minority of of fans in America. Like, he, he always stays around the 40% mark, which means there's 60% of Americans who don't like him. Um, but yeah, nothing seems to budget. So the only thing that could possibly budget is a Democratic nominee who can really fire people up and unite them. And it's hard because Kamala Harris is great, but she's not really a fire people up type. Elizabeth Warren's a fire people up type, but she's too, you know, I think progressive for some people. Um, 
and Joe Biden's just a mess. Um, so it's not, it's worry, you know, there's like, there's lots and lots of people who are, who have most of the ingredients, but not all of them. And there's nobody who has all the ingredients. That's, that's where we are right now. Do you have a permanent visa for here? Uh, I've got a green card, but I'm in the citizenship process. Yeah, sometimes I wonder if people feel afraid to tweet now in an anti-Trump way for fear of... Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little cautious. Um, saying that, I've got friends like Maeve Higgins, um, who has no such caution. Um, and nothing bad's happening to her. Her visa's getting, getting renewed. But I'm a little cautious. Like, I think until I get my citizenship... Um, yeah, but I think you should be cautious on Twitter anyway. It's like, what's 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 the point of Twitter? Like, you're not, you're not paying us, um, so what's the point? On that note, uh, John Ronson, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, as a final exit point from my roots are showing, uh, we like to play occasionally a little theme tune. So, is there any song that really represents you, or that you'd love to hear, or have us play a little bit of? Uh, Simon Smith and his amazing Dancing Bear by Randy Newman (laughs) John it's been a pleasure thanks Nadine lovely to see you again you too Sincere smile and my dancing bear outrageous, alarming, courageous, charming. Oh, who would think a boy and bear could be well accepted everywhere? It's just amazing how fair people can be. And my thanks again to Mr. John Ronson. You can find his many books in all good bookstores. He is also on Twitter at John Ronson. And his podcasts, The Last Days of August and The Butterfly Effect, which we were talking about, are available now uh, via Audible and elsewhere. You can find me on Twitter, by the way, by going to at my roots or show for this particular podcast. Or you can go to my own page at Nadine O'Regan. And if you like this podcast with John, please do check out uh, some of the other ones. I have podcasts up now with the author Willie Vallotton, with the Irish author Kevin Barry, and also with uh, the British author and musician Tracy Thorne, as well as with the actor uh, Donald Gleeson and the director Lenny Abrahamson. So there's a lot there. And if you're listening on iTunes, please do consider subscribing. And should we always love a good review? Always very much appreciated. Coming up next on My Roots Are Showing, I will be bringing you an interview I did with Mr. Graham Norton, the chat show host, author and broadcaster. We recorded that interview recently as part of the West Cork Literary Festival. Uh, It was a public interview. It was a lot of fun and it takes in his roots in West Cork, his writing and, of course, his encounters with many colourful celebrity guests. For now, though, this is Nadina Regan signing out. Till next time, do take care. When you're funny, big attraction everywhere will be Simon Smith and his dancing bear is Simon Smith and the amazing.